0: Welcome to Ictus, The Evolving Conductor, your source for everything conducting, teaching, and lifelong learning on and off the podium. Treat yourself to a dose of musical inspiration as we pick the minds of great conductors. I'm your host, Lisa Tatum. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tanya Mitchell-Spradlin, who is the Director of Wind Band Studies and Assistant Professor of Music at Penn State University. Hello, Dr. Mitchell Spradlin. It's so nice to have you on Intus today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. We
0: typically like to start off with having our guests talk a little bit about their history, especially regarding when it was that you knew you wanted to be a musician.
1: So I'm from Atlanta. I'm actually from Lawrenceville, Georgia, but nobody knows where Lawrenceville is. So let's just say (laughs) I'm from Atlanta. Yeah. And we had a pseudo musical family growing up in that my mom played music throughout the house all the time. So I remember listening to Bob Marley next to Enya and then Bella Fleck followed by Dave Matthews band, Chopin and then Lady Smith Black Mombazos, like a very eclectic wide range of music. Uh, she was also in an African drumming band called so Drum cool. Cafe. And the whole family played in Earth Shaking Samba, the samba band in Atlanta. That's so and, cool. Right. And we were, I think we were too young to be in that band because we performed at clubs. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's maybe like a Pavlovian effect to being in that ensemble because after every rehearsal, We stopped at this convenience store and we got red rock ginger ale and peanut M&Ms. And this was a big deal in the Mitchell household because we were never allowed to have sweets. Mm. So we were trained to like rehearsing. (laughs) There you go. Yes. And when I was around seven or eight, I got this 66 key little light up key Casio keyboard and I just fell in love with it. And I started taking piano lessons around nine from a teacher down the road who I I think is largely responsible for my choice to be a music educator. Her name is Valencia Giles. I ended up taking lessons with her for about 22 years. Wow. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a band director when I started lessons with her, but that seed was germinating. I did know I wanted to be a band director in the 6th grade. I Really? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's all I've ever wanted to do since. I loved my instrument. I loved playing in band. I played the clarinet and then the trombone, and I remember my, my in the 8th grade, my middle school band director said, if you can make all state on the trombone, then I'll throw you a party. And so little clarinet me started coming to school every morning and practicing trombone before my first class. And I made all state. Oh my gosh. I did not get a party though.
0: (laughs) I'm bitter for you.
1: Oh, thanks. Every other experience after that kind of validated that decision to want to be a band director. I played in youth orchestras and I had great teachers and wonderful mentors. And I had family who would let me play their instruments, a cousin who gave me a saxophone so I could practice that and drums around the house so I could just learn as much as I could before I went to school. So that's, that's kind of the story of how I wanted to become a teacher.
0: That's so cool. So from there, what led you down this path of conducting?
1: I had a a mentor when I went to my undergrad for the first time, Paul Popiel, And Paul Popiel was my first ever conducting teacher. I had him as a freshman at IU and I enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved diving into the score and learning things that as an individual player playing my own part that I hadn't thought about. And I remember him saying something like, ooh, the force is strong in you, young one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're 18 years old and you go to school nine hours away from your home, those little things stick with you and it's motivating. And so I just kept, I kept learning and he continued to be a mentor to me. And then I went and taught high school and he was still a mentor. And offered a couple of conducting clinics that were being hosted by the University of Kansas. So as a high school teacher, I'd fly to Kansas and and take part in those and then called and said he had a position open for his DMA program and made the hard decision to leave teaching high school to go there. But I think it's once I started learning what conducting was and how to study a score that... I realized very quickly that I was way more passionate about that aspect of my musicianship than I was playing my instrument.
0: Wow, I think a lot of people can relate to you there. So when you realized that that's what you were passionate about, what sort of
1: steps did you take to hone in on those things? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I would find pieces that I liked and I would do phrase diagrams, like pages and pages of phrase diagrams. Gosh, what is the digital version? The variations audio timeliner was really cool. It's, I think it started in IU. It's just a way to do a virtual phrase map of the cool. form of a piece. And you can put in little notes and what happens here and there. So I would take pieces and I would do my own phrase maps. And that was something that It was really fun to do. (laughs) And so I would do it with host suites and, and I would do it with, with things that we were studying in music ed. And I would just make a, just a formal analysis with variations, audio timeline, I have all these pages, uh, that I have found when looking back on, you know, resources that I used as an undergrad that for some reason I didn't throw away. I I still have that just hanging on to, and it's just pages and pages of, of phrase maps that I did. Yeah.
0: So I think this is a good thing to point out for listeners. What do you think are some of the important aspects of doing those types of phrase diagrams within our score study?
1: For what they did for me? was give me a holistic sense of how the piece is constructed. So when we're choosing repertoire, of course, it needs to speak to you. And then we get to the whole question of what actually is quality that we discuss at at length, ad nauseum. But in understanding what that is for each individual conductor and each performer, it requires having opinions about the piece and feeling very strongly and convicted about those opinions. And so what the mapping does is it gives you a great overview. There's, you can put harmonic analysis inside as well. Instrumental and the orchestration changes are written in as well. And it's really excellent as a rehearsal tool, especially if sharing with the, with the ensemble, because it organizes the piece outside of the score. You know, if a phrase map is good enough, you can use that to conduct from and not the score itself. Right. I'm so glad that you pointed that out. I think
0: at least in my career as a player from middle school, high school into collegiate playing and playing professionally, the times that the conductor has shared the score or that sort of phrasal analysis or just those kinds of concepts have really helped me to be able to know exactly where my part is going within what's happening in the music. And I think we forget that sometimes that we don't have to keep all those things to ourselves we can share those with the ensemble and they can benefit from it and they can learn from that too. So that's really cool. Thank you for pointing that out.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think the whole process, kind of my philosophy in general, is that what we do should be as transparent as possible. I think that takes kind of the, the ego out of it and it makes it more of a conversation and a give and take. You know, I always want the ensemble to feel like it's this symbiotic relationship where they're giving to me and I'm giving to them. It's it's about that communication and having the score and having access to marked scores mm. and the same rehearsal recordings that I'm listening to. The ensemble has access to those as well. Yeah, And also everybody else's part. So everything is totally transparent.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's really good. You use the magic word, quality repertoire or whatever we decide that that is.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: This whole project started in search of great musicianship and great music. Would you be willing to share about a few pieces that you think are just really fantastic repertoire?
1: Sure. There are pieces that I love. There are pieces that like turn something on within me. And one of those pieces, I remember the first time I heard it was Of Our New Day Begun by Omar yes. Thomas. I just love him as a person in general. Mm. He's an inspirational human. He's down to earth. He stands in his truth. He's comfortable with who he is. He believes in a vision and it just resonates all around him. And I had the pleasure of working with him when he came to the University of South Carolina and I spent a good deal of time with him. And you know, when we talk about representation in music and inclusion. Sometimes it takes seeing a person like that to like give you permission to be your authentic self. And I noticed that happening with some of the students he worked with and I felt that a little bit too. So the piece of our new day begun was particularly striking. Even before listening to the music, I had just so many emotions about the subject matter. It honors the nine people who were murdered at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. My family is from South Carolina. My grandparents were extremely involved in their AME church. So it was painful and maddening to see that kind of, of, of violence and racism. But the piece is just, it's gorgeous. And the inclusion of the humming, mm, you can feel yourself sitting in the pews of the church. It's yearning and it's optimistic at the same time. And it's particularly uplifting to hear people on stage stomping and clapping and singing the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, around the entire country. So it's like validating and very powerful and affirming. So that's a, a very striking piece that when I listen to even now, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. Yeah, that's oh,
0: that's a great one. Oh. You said something that made me think of a webinar that I was on last night, and you're talking about allowing people to be their most authentic self or allowing our students to have that opportunity to be their most authentic self. This webinar I was on the other night was for a brand new book called The Horizon Leans Forward, and I would yes. suggest that anybody out there, if you are looking to add something to your book collection uh, about repertoire or about information information. On that exact subject, I think that's a great book to order from GIA Publishers. that might be on Amazon soon. But would you be willing to discuss that a little bit more? How we can help
1: guide our students to a place where they feel comfortable being themselves? Sure. And you know, the book you're talking about, The Horizon Leans Forward. Y'all at home can't see me, but I'm holding it and I'm and I'm hugging it because I'm so glad that this book exists. Uh, not just for the list of resources and rep by underrepresented composers, but also just the stories and and ways to move forward. So that's certainly a struggle that I have felt in my career when I looked up and became aware that there were not a lot of other people who looked like me that were doing what I was doing. And I mentioned earlier, I all I've ever wanted to be was a was a band director. Yeah of any sort. I didn't, not necessarily middle school, high school, or college, I just wanted to be a great band director. I wanted to inspire students. And it's not till I went to college and started teaching college that I became fully aware that there were not a lot of other people who looked like me doing the same thing. And it really does create a little bit of like cognitive dissonance when you close your eyes and you try to imagine what being successful in a space looks like, and you can't see it representing you. I think there are nine black female college band directors in the country and fewer than 20 in the history of band in the United States. There are more black female pilots than there are college band directors. Mm -hmm. And I've never had a female pilot that I've seen other college bands. So it's just, that's a big disparity there. Right. Yeah. So I think it, kind of creates like struggles with confidence or that feeling of imposter syndrome. Okay. And there's this article, you know, in the past year or so in the Music Ed Journal that said something like 60 to 70% of college band directors in any field feel imposter syndrome in their first 5 years of teaching. And then it, it that number goes up significantly if you're in a minority class or if you're the only woman in your field or in your in your classroom. But your question was, <laughs> how can we try to close the gap, right? Like how can yeah. we make what we do inclusive and encourage other people and encourage, you know, young women and people of color to feel comfortable in this space. And I think the, the first thing that we have to do is just show a representation. Representation is everything and it is literally the bulk of advocacy, I think. And if students can see themselves, then they're more likely to go down the path. There's another article that was in NPR, and it said that these students in this inner city school, predominantly young African-American males, when they got one African-American male teacher in elementary school, their graduation rate went up something like 20%. And then they got two and the graduation rate went up to be around 30, 40%. Wow. Just from having a teacher in any field, just seeing themselves in a professional setting made that much of a difference. So that's the first thing. And that's super easy to do in terms of just who you bring in for guests and the music that is on the page. For my students and for our audience, it's important that there is a large swath of thoughts and backgrounds and ideas that's represented in the music that we're playing. And that usually starts from the composers who write the music. And so it's my personal philosophy that there are pieces by people of color and pieces by women on on all of the concerts. However... That's a fine line to walk, because then you get into this whole idea of like tokenism and and checking a box, right? And so the amount of time it takes to make every program one of integrity and one that I believe in is is high. I mean, it takes programming is the scariest part of what we do in the first place. Sure, right? <laughs> and then to add on a couple of of caveats to the programming that I find that is important, makes it take a little bit longer, but it's worth it. And it creates genuine programs, authentic connections with students and composers. And it leads to the goal of helping to move us forward.
0: One of the great things about us working specifically with bands is our history is not that old. And some people may disagree with me. That's not super great. I think it's fantastic. The fact that our main source of rep only goes back 100 years because there are so many people out there writing new music for our ensemble. And we have an opportunity to champion those composers like you're talking about, you know, female composers, BIPOC composers, all sorts of different
1: people to write new, great music for our students. Yeah, precisely. And I think there's an element of risk-taking that's allowable in our profession because there's so much new music. I think a lot more so than if patrons are paying a certain amount of money to hear something that they know well. And so that lends itself to being able to try some new things and feature new composers.
0: Have you done any consortiums lately?
1: Uh, Yes, I think I'm in... Four or five consortiums right now. Oh, man.
0: Talking about really promoting a new composer, we forget that we can work together to do this. We don't have to do this on our own. There's this beautiful thing called a consortium. And if you find a composer that you think is doing really great work, you don't have to commission a piece all by yourself. It's so great to be able to reach out to friends and say, hey, do you have $1,000 or do you have $500 or do you have a couple hundred dollars to add into this consortium? Would you mind sharing a little bit about maybe some experiences you've had with that sort of thing?
1: Ooh, sure. Let's see, the first consortium that I think I spent time with was when I started one for my doctoral project when I left the University of Kansas. I commissioned a work from Aaron Perine, and I know we're talking about building works by underrepresented composers. And, you know, it's something interesting about that is that I also think it's really important that when you are working to form a more inclusive space, you don't forget about diversity all around. Yeah. And I guess what I mean by that is when I see a concert, I feel like that concert program needs to be a representation of the world I wanna live in. And I don't wanna live in a world of all one gender. And so I don't wanna live in a world of all one race. And so I'm probably not gonna program a concert of a singular gender or race. Not that there's that a problem with that, but it doesn't align with, with my current philosophy. I think that it should be representative of all people and I should do my best to try to, to instill that. And then to feature wonderful music that I believe very strongly in. But I thought that there was a dearth of music for percussion ensemble and WINS. Why did I focus on percussion? <laughs> because at the time I was doing a lot of work with percussion and conducting ionization. And I met my husband there, who is also a percussionist. Mm. And I really wanted to work with Aaron, who I think is just a wonderful human being. And he wanted to write for percussion as well. and so we took on that project and then other consortiums it's just a matter of finding someone whose voice you believe in and then reaching out to other people and building on top of that and so that other people get to see what they're doing that they might not know about last summer i was sitting at my desk and i was looking at music by kataj copley and one of kataj copley's teachers reached out to me and said hey do you want to join this consortium here's a little snippet. I'm sure he'd be okay with me sending a little snippet of this. And he went to bat for this composer who was already on my mind anyway. I'd already Mm -hmm. been listening to his music. In terms of kind of how consortiums work, usually it's just one person believes strongly in this person's voice and wants to have that voice heard. Having a network is where this is really helpful and (laughs) reach out to all of your, the people that you went to school with and people you were grad students with. Hey, remember that- late night i helped you study for this test give me 500 for this <laughs> piece <laughs> it's I mean, not lost- exactly like that but <laughs> it's true though <laughs> yeah i mean those are the first people i reach out to are my my colleagues from school right <laughs> we you know help each other
0: that's great information but it, it is true though the first people we reach out to are friends from school whether it was undergrad or in graduate school or somewhere down the road
1: Oh, yeah. And in building that that knowledge of repertoire and building this kind of database of composers who might be new or new to writing for the wind band or, you know, are diverse composers or for trying to play more music by women or more people by uh, people of color. When other people reach out with consortium opportunities, that's a great learning experience for me because sometimes it's a composer I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I get the opportunity to learn about a new person, a new human, a a new composer, see what other works they've written for other mediums or for band and expand my own knowledge.
0: Do you have any other strategies that you use when you're looking for new
1: composers or new music to program? I ask around a lot of people. I use And We Were Heard significantly. And I think that's a wonderful resource in connecting composers to ensembles and connecting composers to conductors in order to champion their music and get them excellent recordings. So I use that source quite a bit. I use the composer diversity database. I ask questions to my colleagues. I find a piece I really love, maybe not for the wind band medium, and then search around to see what else that composer has done. That's good to know.
0: Whenever we hear other people's processes, it always helps us to grow and learn our own ways and processes in order to check those things out. So, thank you. Musicians often see themselves as lifetime learners. Do you have any unanswered questions that you feel like you're still learning about or seeking answers to regarding
1: music? I suppose so. You know, we have this task every day of inspiring something beautiful with our players and maybe this is this is more of a question or maybe more of a goal about how we get music to consumers and how we share music with others less about the music itself but I'd like to get better at sharing what we do with people outside of our average consumer base of concert goers. And I think everything kind of ties together. And we talked about inclusion a lot. That's so multifaceted. There's so many ways to go about that. And then there are ways where we move and we move and then it stops. And then it's as if we're just kind of doing it for ourselves and in our academic institution and in our setting. So I've been thinking a lot about like, how do I move forward? how do I do something different? How do we engage more people in what we do? So it gets outside of our niche world. And I don't have, I have some ideas, but I think that that will be kind of a lifelong pursuit of finding the answer to that.
0: Would you be willing to share any specific habits that you feel have helped you on your path to musical growth?
1: listening to music is a huge one and listening to everything not just band music i find that i listen to maybe band music less than anything else at times i have to remind myself to listen to music and once i do i feel the world becoming a better place my shoulders lower a little bit my jaw i didn't even realize was clenched just suddenly unclenched i just feel more clarity you know, when I was a kid and I told my mom that I wanted to be a band director, she bought me three CDs, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, a Billie Holiday album, and Chattanooga Choo Choo hits by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. It's not the Hindemith Symphony that she gave me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no on on these CDs, but I mean, there's so many ways that we can extract beauty and extract excellent music making from all aspects of music that we're listening to. I find that whenever I listen to anything by Esperanza Spalding, if I listen to her music the night before rehearsal, I'm a better in rehearsal. And I think it's just because she is so tension-free and creative and authentic. And it's good to see and hear examples of that. And that's not band music, but it all translates. And so I, I think that habit and making it, making it a habit to find beautiful art and beautiful music that's outside of maybe what we're conducting will make what we're conducting better. My mom's an artist as well. And so I grew up in an art household. And so I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a, like purveyor of fine art, but I have an extreme appreciation for uh, visual creativity. And so I I find myself looking for art and finding ways that art inspires me. So, and, and not just listening and not just taking in things that are beautiful, but also identifying why it's moving to us because ultimately things that we enjoy are going to be different from person to person. And the way that we express that to an ensemble is going to be different from conductor to conductor. And so not just listening, but also identifying like what makes it beautiful, what moves in our body, what inspires us. That's how we are able to translate it. Very cool.
0: Is there anything regarding your philosophy of music education or philosophy or ideas of teaching that either you felt strongly about when you were younger, or your mind has changed about now, or anything that you feel much more strongly about
1: than you did, say, 10 years ago? I feel very strongly about one particular aspect about what we do, and I think it's people first. So often, we forget that we can't make music without people in front of us. And I've always been that kind of person that would make little notes and write things down. And I've been doing that since you know I was in the single digits. And I remember, and I still have my notebooks of writing down my goals for my first year teaching, my second year teaching, my third year teaching. And they are always to make meaningful connections with people through the music and to inspire my students through playing music that reaches them and touches them and that we together are passionate about. And that's been my philosophy from the time that I left school. And it's still my philosophy now. And that's kind of guided me along the way. We talked earlier about having this vision and that vision being open-ended enough so that it kind of maintains the integrity of your actions. It's not necessarily time-based. And that has worked for me. And it's put me in situations where I felt I could grow. And it put me around people that I learned from and that I was inspired by and hopefully that I get to inspire as I continue to teach. That's beautiful. If you were to
0: give one piece of advice to current teachers out there, what advice would you give them?
1: I would say take your take your time. Don't expect everything to happen all at once. Focus on your purpose and your why and make choices and decisions that reflect your personal mission. And I think that's how you walk through life with integrity and that's how you walk through this field with integrity not trying to be the next somebody, but just trying to be the best you every day. And we, we know that comparison is the thief of joy. Right. <laughs> I would also say be open, be vulnerable, don't be afraid to ask questions, learn as much as you can and never stop. So, so kind of be insatiably curious about what's happening around you. And then maybe the last little piece of advice is surround yourself with good quality people. You'll always encounter people who, no matter what you do in your life, will sing your praises. And the opposite is true too. You will encounter people who, no matter what you do, they'll find something wrong with it. So it's important to have people who, who are honest with you, who give you constructive criticism, but ultimately whose goal it is is to lift you up. So seek those people out and don't be afraid to search for them and to ask them questions and to bring them into your, into your vision for your future.
0: That's great advice. Do you read any of Brene Brown's stuff? Yes. I love Brene Brown. But she talks about your index card people. And like those are the people that, like the five people you can write on an index card. Like those are the ones you can trust. Am I being ridiculous? Yes, you're being ridiculous. Okay, I trust you. <laughs> it's like knowing who to, anyway, that just made me think of that. I love her. Yes, so do I. I listen to her
1: podcast.
0: She's so good. She's so good. So if you don't mind, we're going to wrap up with a couple rapid fire questions.
1: All right, I'm ready. I I think.
0: <laughs> you got this. The first question is a concert you'll never forget.
1: Ooh, right before the pandemic, I was doing an honor band in Georgia. So in, in the district where I taught and we played Conversations. We That was one of the pieces on the program by Chandler Wilson. And like... Uh, of our new day begun it has lift every voice and sing and when we got done playing the piece there's a standing ovation from the crowd and I saw people crying and it's the first time I've ever seen people crying in what I hope was a good way (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, from a piece of music I talked to them afterwards and they said I've never been to a concert where that piece was featured on this stage or that song was on this stage and it, it meant a lot to us and it just really spoke to, you know, how we can affect people.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. What's the best meal you've ever eaten?
1: Mm, I'm not very attached to food. I just, I just want to get energy. But ice cream does run through my veins. So. Okay, <laughs> I'll stand in line for an hour to get some Jenny's ice cream. <laughs> What's your favorite kind of ice cream? Ah, uh, cherry Garcia.
0: Delicious. Okay. Who's your musical hero? Uh
1: my musical hero is, is my teacher actually. It's it's Paul pupil and it's because of the way that he treats humans in the ensemble. He gets excellent results by encouraging them to be exactly who they are. There's humor, there's communication and the culture and the atmosphere is one that that makes everyone feel like they're valued and it's fun. Yeah. We're supposed to have fun. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed.
0: Yes. Is there anything that you've binged, watched lately and loved?
1: Mm. I rewatched Grey's Anatomy and it was a semester project. I started in August and I just finished um, when the semester ended and I I loved it. I I love the characters. I also love that Shonda, I love Shonda rhymes, first of all and everything that she does because she takes what's happening in the world and she's not afraid to talk about the hard things in a palatable way for everyone to ingest in their Thursday night drama.
0: (laughs) I think I need to give that show another chance. I tried watching it when it was first being made and I just never got hooked. And Mm -hmm. I think I need to give it another shot anyway, maybe this summer when the semester's done. Next question. You can meet any musician, alive or dead, for coffee. Who do you meet and why?
1: I would love to meet Billie Holiday. Just have a conversation with her about her life and the depth of her music and her voice. There's so many, (laughs) but she came to mind first. I love that. Last
0: one. What's one thing that you're grateful for right
1: now? I am grateful that I'm living... my vision for myself. I'm living the field that I've always wanted to be part of, and then I get to interact with my students. Gosh, I don't know how I would have gotten through this pandemic if I didn't have the opportunity to work with great people, great students, great humans. You know, there's this book called Lost Connections, Johan okay. uh, Kari, I-, I think, and it talks about people not feeling connected to the world when they lose connection to people, they lose connection to the meaningful future. And so I'm grateful that I'm able to have that connection with people. Yeah.
0: Dr. Mitchell Spradlin, it's been so great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. And I want to wish you well in the rest of your semester.
1: Oh, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak with you for the last hour or so. And I'm grateful that you asked me to be a guest. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a lovely week. And make sure that you check back in next week for a very special interview with Mr. Frank Battisti. You can find ICTUS on Facebook and Instagram at IC2US, that's at ICTUS. If you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to hit subscribe. And I'd ask, would you consider telling your friends about it or leaving a review so more people can find it.